0: It's QuidQuo Pro we entered into with open eyes. I find it incredibly hypocritical when people get on Facebook and complain about data privacy restrictions on Facebook while dumping all their private stuff onto a post. I mean, come on. But here's my problem with old time value investing. It's become flabby
1: and lazy. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment ideas from seeking out the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes analysis work. I'm Mike Taylor.
2: And I'm Daniel Schwarzen.
1: Today we have a special guest. People call him the Dean of Valuation. He's a one-man multimedia evaluation conglomerate. Textbooks, blog posts, YouTube videos, Twitter, the guys all over the web. So all over the web that we even covered an article of his on a recent Behind the Idea episode. Investors at all experience levels draw on his public online databases, and he's just a great asset to the investing community. So please, let's welcome Aswath Damodaran, PhD from NYU's Stern School of Business. Welcome to the show, Professor.
2: Thank you. And two things
0: I never use with my name are PhD and Dean Evaluation, but I'm glad you put them in there because I can take them out.
1: Oh, <laughs> we'll either edit them out or you'll just have to, you'll just have to that's accept okay. my apology. No, no that's disrespect fine. Intended.
0: <laughs> Just leave it as is. It's fine. I'm, I'm okay with it. I, I'll tell you why. I mean, the Dean of I think, is a terrifying title because it suggests that you've somehow mastered valuation. And in uh-huh. fact, that might be a good place to start because I think people think of valuation as a science that they can master. Valuation is a craft. You're never quite in control of it. You learn by doing it. And I tell people I value a company probably one company a week, and I go all over the globe valuing companies. And every time I value a company, I learn something new about valuation. So it's a process where you're never quite in control of the subject, but you keep learning as you do it.
1: Let's start out with uh, the Facebook analysis that you published in mm-hmm. mid-April, right around the time that Mark Zuckerberg was about to, or was testifying in front of Congress over the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So, can you right. just give us a quick rundown of what your idea was there? Well, I know. Facebook is a company you cannot avoid in
0: markets. It's been around. I've followed it for a long time. In fact, I valued for the first time three months before its IPO, and I followed through and I valued multiple times since. So The company I'm familiar with, the company I've held once before when it hit 18, way back three months after its IPO, but then I sold too early at 50 because the stock kept going up. But it's a company that fascinates me because it's a company that, unlike most of these young user-based companies, has figured out a way to actually convert those user numbers into incredible profits. I think the thing that's always impressed me about Zuckerberg is he's a businessman first and a tech guy next, As, as opposed to many other people who seem to be so caught up in the excitement of their technology that they don't think about what a business is designed to do. So I've always been fascinated by it. But the news stories, of course, in mid-March caused kind of a mini panic in markets where people said, this is the end. And whenever I hear that, I, my response is, is this really the end? Because I've heard that so often with companies when it's really not the end that I decided to take another look at Facebook. So that's what triggered my my, my re-looking at Facebook. It's not the first time, but it's a, I decided to take another look to see. What's changed? Could the value have dropped as much as the market think it has, or is this an overreaction?
1: Great, thanks for that. Yeah, well, that's a perspective that I think is really interesting, the idea of Mark Zuckerberg as a businessman first and a tech person second. I'm not sure that that's a widely shared view or it's just a kind of an interesting perspective. But anyway, Daniel, do you want to get into attacking some of the particulars of the professor's article?
2: Yeah, so one of the things we started on is that the valuation seems to center the actual end product is a histogram you produce that shows a fairly bullish spread of possible outcomes for Facebook's value. And to be fair, since since you published that article, the stock has gone only one direction and that's up. And so one of the big questions that we had coming out of that was that sort of what... Your prior conceptions, your prior viewpoint on Facebook, which I think you sort of summarized here, Mark Zuckerberg is a good businessman. The company is a success at converting their users into profits and not just into vanity metrics about user growth <laughs> or whatever else. We thought that you know there is a world where Facebook gets disrupted for one reason or another, whether it's the issues that are coming up right now or the fact that it's a fast-moving technology space, the very obvious example is MySpace, but there are other companies who gain this prominence, but then lose their edge for one reason or another. Is your approach, do you feel the model catches this? Or do you feel that it's just something that you have to kind of keep adjusting the rudders as the news changes? Or how do you sort of view the potential of Facebook's competition or their edge or whatever else changing over time?
0: I I think that is a legitimate fear. I've uh, described tech companies as aging in dog ears, which basically means that a 20-year tech company is like a 150-year-old manufacturing company. Because what happens is they scale up really fast, they hit a peak, and then they scale down really fast. You can think about BlackBerry and Yahoo as classic examples of companies that came out of nowhere became these huge successful companies and very quickly became nothing again. The question you have for a Facebook, is it more like a Microsoft or an Apple? And what they, what those companies have done, is, as they've scaled up, they've created barriers to entry that prevent other people from scaling up. It's almost like they've invaded an island and then they've made the moat around the island deeper and deeper, which allows them to survive in this business, not as growing companies. In fact, for Facebook, I give them 10 years of growth and then they go into the steady state where nothing much happens. So I'm not assuming they can keep doing this for 50 years, but I'm assuming that beyond the 10th year, they're not going to disappear like Yahoo did or, and I think that's because Facebook is really, it's not the technology that sets Facebook apart, it's the users. I mean, Facebook technology is not cutting edge. It's not as if it's at the, it's doing anything with technology somehow new and different. What it has is 2.2 billion users on a fairly traditional technology And I think that's what's going to keep Facebook afloat is that is the ultimate competitive advantage. How do you get a user community of 2.2 billion that's used to the traditional Facebook ecosystem to leaving? And the scary thing about Facebook is it's not quite done, right? I mean, I think we forget with Facebook and Instagram that the fastest growing part of Facebook is actually WhatsApp. And WhatsApp has actually been kept out of the Facebook ecosystem almost deliberately. In fact, most people that I've talked to use WhatsApp. We ask them, do you know you're using a Facebook product? They have no idea. And that's, I think, what we miss is, you know, we think about Facebook, the traditional social media side. We don't even think about Instagram. And we definitely don't think about WhatsApp. What Facebook is doing is not so much technological, but finding ways to keep users on their ecosystem for an extended period. In fact, that's true for all of these companies. Google does the same thing. We think of Google as a search engine. We forget about Gmail. We forget about YouTube, which after all is where most people spend time online on Google. We forget about Google shared documents. It's an ecosystem that these companies have created. So I think it's easy to treat them as technology companies, but I think technology is really not their selling point. It's what they do with their technology that's allowed them to become as successful as it is. And that's why I have a fairly optimistic story about Facebook because I don't see any of the stuff that has come out as being fundamentally damaging to their basic story. Their basic story is, we will learn a lot about you. They might never say this. We will learn a lot about you with your interactions in our ecosystem and we we'll use that to sell you more targeted advertising. That's a, so when people talk about data privacy being violated, this is a feature of their business, not a bug. It's quid Quo pro we entered into with open eyes. I find it incredibly hypocritical when people get on Facebook and complain about data privacy restrictions on Facebook while dumping all their private stuff onto a post. I mean, come on. Right. You know, we, right. And so that to me was at the core of the story. This is not a valiant story, uh, story where you can say hey, the core brand has been damaged. They will never be able to produce a pharmaceutical company because they need healthcare regulators to sign off. I don't see that as the kind of damage created by the story. So to me, the story, while it suggested that Facebook had been very loose with the data, and they have, it's not a core problem for their business model. I think they can still go back to that
2: business model. Just quickly on that with the WhatsApp piece, yeah. I'm, I'm reviewing your article, and I don't think you specifically make any assumptions about how they monetize the different Instagram or WhatsApp. How do you think about, are you building that in? Or This is the thing about Facebook is they're not going to monetize
0: each piece separately they monetize your time in the ecosystem. So here's what you're gonna notice, you're never, they're not gonna charge you for WhatsApp, but by sucking you in to spend an hour and a half in the Facebook ecosystem, they can now tell advertisers, look, one fifth or one eighth of every person's waking day is on our ecosystem. If you want to sell stuff to them, we know where to find them. And in the world we live in today, that's an incredibly powerful selling tool because time is a constraint and the companies that claim our time are the ones that are ending up with these huge market values. Think about it. You, you know, you spend more time in your Apple device than than in your on your automobile or in your kitchen. No wonder Apple is worth as much as was you start adding up the time we spend in the ecosystems of these companies, it doesn't surprise me at all that they're at the top of the market capitalizations of companies. because that's what Facebook is selling. It's selling time in their ecosystem and saying, we know what they're doing. So even though they're not directly monetizing WhatsApp, every time you use WhatsApp, that goes into a database they're collecting on you. And trust me, that database is a collective database it's your whatever you do on facebook instagram whatsapp it's all going into one database where they can triangulate and figure out exactly who you are as a person what you like what you don't like where you hang out so all of the things that are useful in their core business is what you know makes this so you know so difficult to get your hands around because you are saying, hey they're not charging for whatsapp they're giving it away for free you're right but they're getting your time in return. And that time is what they're using to accumulate information about you.
2: So it sounds to me like if I were looking at risks based on your thesis, I would be looking at amount of time spent on rival platforms as compared to Facebook. I'd be looking on can any competitors monetize anywhere close to as well as Facebook. And then I guess what spurred the article itself, understanding what you say about the hypocrisy of somebody who gives all their data to Facebook, then complaining about how it's used, it's still, you can understand that some people, the way you describe that, like that's, if I'm on what's I'm, if I'm in a WhatsApp group planning a party or something, and then all of a sudden that's linked to everything else I'm doing, like that could cause concerns, whether it's for users or regulators, I guess those would seem to me the three obvious risks your story does that pan out to you and if so how would you address that
0: yeah. remember the old adage there is no free lunch yeah I mean I think we need to take that there when you use your GPS in your on your phone in the car think back to the time when you had to pay $200 to buy a Garmin whatever and right now or put it into your car you're getting it for free at least in the face of it but what do you do in return? You're sending information about where you are, where you're going to some database where it can be used on you. So when people say, look, you know, I didn't expect this. I, I asked them, how much did you pay for WhatsApp last year? And the answer is no. Think of all the stuff you got out of WhatsApp. There is no free lunch in this world. So the next time you're online and something seems given to you for free that looks really good. Remember, this is the Core Pro. I mean, I, I was checking my iPhone yesterday and there are 20 apps that are tracking my location. Not accidentally, I've given them permission to track my location because it makes my life more convenient. There is a price right. we're paying for all of this neat stuff that we have at our fingertips that we pay nothing for. Think of Google Shared Documents. It's an incredible advantage, right? You can create you know, these spreadsheets and documents for free in the face of it, and put it on a data on, a, on the cloud and other people can take a look at it. And we're getting this for nothing, at least in the face of it. And my, my point is whenever it seems like you're getting something for nothing, you are giving up something. In the case of all of these products, you are giving up something. The follow up to that is, how much do you care about your privacy? Are there people who will care enough that they will back out of the system? Yes, but I think they're the exceptions rather than the rule because here's the problem. The train's left the station. Your privacy is gone. Everybody knows, every, there, there are no layers of mystery left to me. I think about everything I put <laughs> online. There's nothing that, that I'm going to accomplish now by bringing the gates down saying, I'm not going to share anymore. Everybody knows everything about everybody already. So at this stage to me, it's like, uh, I think the reaction that most people will have will be, you're right, they're finding out more about me, but so what? Everybody knows everything about me anyway. So I think that that's why I don't think you're seeing the vast drop off in user rates from people, not to mention the fact that we're getting something neat in return and we don't (laughs) want to give it up.
2: Right, okay. That sort of addresses the qualitative aspects. I wanted to go quickly just through some of the th- – this isn't specific to Facebook now. It's more getting towards your valuation investing approach. Um, okay. Your fair value in the article, I think, was 181. I think you had another output that was 179. The stock 179 now –
0: 181 was the DCF value. 179 was the median of the, uh, of the, of the simulation. Yeah, but okay. Let's round it to one Okay. Was was
2: fair okay. Great, and so the stock now is at one, I think eighty five as we speak. And you know, what? this is my
0: worst case scenario in many ways. Is when you pick a stock, you want it to actually go up gradually over time. Because here's the conundrum I face. Facebook is probably fairly valued right now, so I'm going to let it go. But what if it goes to 205? If I stay consistent with my investment philosophy, there's a tipping point at which I have to say, I bought the stock because it was undervalued. It's time for me to leave because it's overvalued. And the reason it's a conundrum is I have a tax issue, right? Because if I sell 12 weeks after I bought, I might've been successful in my investment strategy. I'm happy about that, but I now have to pay ordinary income taxes on it. So I'm hoping and praying it stays around 185, 190 for a little while, giving me a chance to kind of get my, my, my time for capital gains under control. But I, that's what I do, I value, revalue. I, I've never believed this value investing adage of just buy it and forget about it, where you buy something because it's undervalued, you put it in your portfolio. And you let it ride for life that strikes me as inconsistent with a true value investing philosophy which says if you buy something because it's cheap you should be ready to sell that same thing when it's expensive which means valuation is a continuous exercise i re- i have 53 stocks in my portfolio i revalue every single one of them at least once a year it sounds like a lot of work but a lot of it is maintenance valuation where i have to go back and just Every time a big earnings report comes, I take a look at the numbers and say, has the value changed by enough for me to continue to hold the stock? My typical time horizon is still five to seven years, but there are stocks I've okay. sold two years into the game, and especially with these, with, with these younger companies, I have to be more willing to reassess what looked like a buy a year or two, year, two years ago and say, is it still something I would want to hold in my portfolio? Every stock has to earn its right to be in my portfolio every year. That's a pretty tough standard to ask stocks to meet, but that's the essence to me of value invested.
1: So do you plan to revalue Facebook anytime soon? I'm, or?
0: I'm, going, I'm going to wait because I think in a sense the dust hasn't fully settled yet, right? Because the privacy regulations have not been written. So be, if they don't get written in the next six to nine months, my guess is nothing's going to happen. If they get written, I want to see what they look like. I mean, are they going to look like the EU privacy laws, which are probably the strictest ones in the face of the earth? Are they going to be looser? So I want to I, I want to see some of the pain actually show up because I've built in a, a, a fair amount of pain into my valuation. I think I assumed a million and a half in lost advertising revenues from. Small businesses, I think Pep Boys, Mozilla, I mean, I've listed a few which have kind of abandoned, but they're like the exceptions. But I want to see how much of that happens. I want to see the next user numbers. I'm really interested to see what happens to the $2.2 billion in the next earnings report. Does it decline a little bit because of this? Does it, I mean, so those are the things I'd like to see. So I'd like to see at least one or two more earnings reports before I revisit it. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting and waiting, and unless there's something catastrophic or disastrous that happens, there's nothing much I'm going to be able to update right now relative to the valuation because my valuation is built upon accounting numbers, which won't get updated the next earnings report, and real news stories, not opinion pieces, real news stories about advertisers leaving or regulatory restrictions being put into place. And that is going to take a few months if it's going to happen at all.
2: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess from the this may open up a longer topic then, but when you talk about the you talk about how your ideal time horizon five seven years and that you're kind of don't want to have to incur a short term tax by selling now and you want to wait till the dust settles. um, You you also write a lot about the margin of safety concept and why you don't subscribe to it. I tend to think about margin of safety as just the chance that I mess up. And if I mess up, I wanna give myself room in case I mess up. And I understand that you deal with that through discount rates, modeling, etc. cetera. No, no, you no, no, no.
0: That's, that, that's not my point. My problem with the margin of safety is maybe okay. others are different. I, I don't see enough undervalued stuff there that I can afford to have a margin of safety. Here's what I mean. Let's say you decide to have a 20% margin of safety. If you're actually valuing companies fairly today with a 20% margin of safety, you will be 90% in cash. So that's oh, really okay. my point. is If you have such incredible investment opportunities that you can afford to have a 20% margin of safety and still be fully invested, all the more power to you. I don't find myself in that position. So maybe in a different market where everything is cheap and I have so many opportunities in front of me that I can pick and choose the 10 best, then I can afford to put in constraints like those. I mean, it goes back to, you know, operations research 101, which is if you put a constraint on your objective, you're essentially going to cost yourself some choices. If you have so many choices that you're okay adding a constraint, my, I have no problem with it. So my problem with margin of safety first is most people who claim to have a margin of safety, if you look at their portfolios, are 70% cash, 80% cash. And my response to them is you can talk as much as you want about the intuition and the logic of margin of safety. Your portfolio is screaming out that your margin of safety is not working for you because you're out of stocks because you want to be conservative. So that's my first. The second is I don't understand how the margin of safety can be an absolute number. How can it be 20% for all stocks or 15% for all stocks? And the whole point of doing a simulation is you can actually see the entire, if you have the entire distribution in front of you, you don't need a margin of safety. You essentially can make your decision based on the distribution. And the point I made about Facebook is, even if it had been just a little bit above fair value, I would have bought it because that platform that I'm assuming will deliver advertising revenues can potentially be used to sell other stuff, and I'm not factoring any of that other stuff yet into my valuation. I mean, if I have you for an hour and a half every day, why should I just stop at advertising? Why couldn't I deliver entertainment? How about retail? So I think there are things that Facebook could do with the $2.2 billion and the one and a half hours a day that I haven't built into my valuation that are pure upside for me, that I, they're more, they're essentially what you call options in in, in, a, in a value. I haven't right. counted the value of those options. That to me is the advantage of having the distribution and thinking through the consequence. It gives your decision more richness than just saying, hey, I have a 15% margin of safety. This stock fails in margin of safety. Therefore, I'm not going to buy
1: it. That's really fascinating. And Daniel and I were sort of nodding to each other as you were talking about not being fully invested and being overloaded in cash because we're both you know margin of safety guys and you know we're, we're definitely in that boat that you mentioned uh i mean i i, I love a lot of what Seth says i mean uh, you've obviously
0: probably read set sets margin uh, book on margin and safety book that you've got to pay what six thousand on amazon to get an old copy on because it's out of print Right, so, you right. know, I, I admire his his in, his intellect and the way he's thought through it, but here's my problem with old-time value investing: it's become flabby and lazy. Flabby and lazy because it's based on metrics which I think are old metrics like P ratios. It's based on absolute rules. You don't buy stocks which have you know which trader P greater than PEG ratio greater than one. You you've seen all those rules. Mm-hmm. And it seems to have lost this power of the story. I mean, I'm a great believer that you cannot just invest in a stock like it is a bond with price appreciation. That's you know, basically if investing based on dividend yield, for instance, or a high dividend. That to me treats a stock like a bond. A stock is not a bond, a stock is a business with a story. And that's one thing about Warren Buffett that sets him apart from many mechanical value investors. He never talks about a company he buys Based on and I bought it because the P/E ratio was seven. He tells a story about the company. His stories tend to—he prefers mature company stories, stable company stories. But there's always a story behind every investment he makes. So the reason he likes Apple is not because it has 300 billion in cash, but because he likes the Apple's story given the price he's getting the stock at. So I think you know because we have so many more numbers we can use. Value investing has become check, a checklist, cre- a screening for four things to find your cheaper stocks. And I don't think in this world that's going to make you money for very long because if you're picking stocks based on four numerical screens, guess what? I can create an ETF that does exactly what you do and run it through a computer and essentially replicate what you do at, at one hundredth of the cost you're bearing as an individual picking these stocks.
2: Right. Which, which is also interesting because you had mentioned the idea of, or, or I wanted to ask you about how you factored sentiment and quality sort of into your thought process, but it sounds like you've, it's built into the valuation, and so that kind of addresses yeah.
0: Actually, that. Sentiment, is, sentiment is a pricing. I, I, I make this big deal about the difference between pricing something and valuing something. And to price something, here's what you're doing. You're looking at other companies like this one and looking at what other people are paying for similar companies. So when you see an analyst use P-E ratios and say, this stock is cheap because it's trading at a PE ratio less than these 15 other companies, he's pricing a company. I, you know, it, it, it strikes me as wrong when analysts talk about valuing companies. Equity research is all about pricing companies. There's nothing wrong with it, but the pricing process is driven by demand and supply. And demand and supply is affected by fundamentals like cash flows, growth and risk, but it's also affected by sentiment. It's affected by mood, it's affected by momentum. And that's something I have to remember because those are very powerful forces. When I mean, people often ask me why I don't sell short Tesla if I don't think it's value, it's value 306. And I tell them the pricing process in Tesla is incredibly powerful. It's driven by mood and momentum and there are enough people who feel strongly enough about Tesla. They're more fans than investors that they can keep the price up for an extended period, a period over which I'm going to end up losing money as somebody selling selling short of the company. So understanding the pricing process is critical to me because even though I am a believer in valuation, I know that the pricing game ultimately has to come around to value for me to make money. So have to understand what drives price, and one of the things that drives price is sentiment, mood, and momentum. And so, I, 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 so when I see people looking at charts, I'm completely okay with it because if you're a trader, that's what you should be doing is looking at charts, looking at technical indicators to detect shifts in mood, mood and momentum. And that can help you decide whether the price is going to go up or down. And I need to understand how you think because ultimately what you do affects me as an investor because the price has to come to value for me to make money.
1: That's a very practical approach and certainly people who have been a little bit more zealous or hardliners have had a tough time in recent markets.
0: Yeah, the two words we need to avoid using, a bubble and speculation. You know why? Because minute you use the word bubble and speculation, what have you just said? Those people are stupid, they're shallow, they're... They don't know what they're doing. I know what I'm doing. It's hubris, okay? It's one reason I would, I, I, I mean, I, I've been to Omaha twice in the last 10 years, but usually to talk to a portfolio manager there, I don't actually go to the meeting. Because while much as I appreciate the honesty that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett bring to this game, I find a lot of people who show up at Omaha are true believers. They're convinced that they're the chosen ones, that they are on the right side of investing. And those other people out there who price stocks based on users or metrics that make no sense, they're the shallow ones and that there'll be justice meted out when those people get punished. And I find that a very strange place to be in markets because then you get angry at markets and then you double down and do really stupid things. So. I have to remind myself that I might be interested in value, but the market is what it is, and I have to respect the
2: market for what it is.
1: But it feels so good. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. I wanted to zoom out a little bit, Professor, and just ask you a simple question, which is, why have you been covering the big tech companies lately?
0: I am a dabbler. At this stage in my life I just dabble in whatever interests me. So for instance, next, in the, the coming week I'm gonna post on Walmart buying Flipkart in India for, okay. for, for, for you know they bought a seventy percent share for sixteen billion, valuing the company twenty three billion. A company which had three billion dollars in revenues last year and lost a billion in operating losses and is locked into a battle with Amazon and that's a battle nobody ever wants to get into where they're having to cut prices and make their margins go further. So I'm interested in it because to me, that's part of a global battlefield that's emerging where, you know, you, 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 you're you getting companies trying to respond to disruptors coming in. Now, I, you know, I'm i also writing a piece on, on Tesla simply because I, after that last earnings report, I want to step back and say well, how would you think about a com- uh, about Tesla now, now that you've had this additional information, not just in numbers, but in terms of what you're learning about the management, about Elon Musk in specific. I want to talk about, in fact, I want to write write something about personality-driven companies, companies where it's the person running the company who, who you pay attention to, not the company itself. So it's things like that that attract my attention. So what I do is I read about it, then I'll, no, I don't, I, uh, because I, I live a life, of, a, 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 I call it a beach bum life. I, you know, I work from eight thirty, twelve thirty, where essentially working is, I go sit by the beach and I think, I, you know, I think about how I would respond to these. So, my attention span is is very short. So once I'm done with the Fang stocks, I'm going to move on to something very different. So don't be surprised if in the next three months. My focus shifts entirely. I spent an entire three months on drug companies. And last year, I talked about valuing a user because that fascinated me. What's the value of a user as opposed to pricing a user? So whatever grabs my attention, I try to write about it until I lose interest and then I move on.
1: That's great. That's great perspective. Idea generation is something we talk a lot about, so it's nice to have i, so, I mean, like,
0: Most people don't have this luxury because they have real jobs. They have to actually get things done because the managing director says, "Get that company valued." I have the luxury of picking and choosing what I what I pay attention to. So I, I'm I not. I, I am very thankful that I have that luxury. But I, you know, but I want to use that that advantage of gain to talk about things that interest me. So that's why I don't do any traditional research. When people say, what what are you doing research on? I haven't done research in the traditional, in the academic sense in 20 years. I haven't submitted a paper for publication. because frankly, I'm not that interested anymore in academic research. There are people who are much better than I at academic research. I mean, I, one of the few advantages I bring is I have a big picture of you because I'm interested in corporate finance, I'm interested in valuation, I'm interested in portfolio management, and sometimes I can see the forest for the trees, and when I do, I can write about it. So that is my is my competitive edge, and you know, I, I, I aim to, to use it as best as I can.
1: That's great. Uh, sort of tying into that, you describe yourself as a teacher first and foremost. How does that fit into this philosophy and your approach to your career and your your life have you noticed, have you noticed how
0: long my blog post go? people complain about it all the time they say they go on and on and on because to me a blog post is just a lecture i'm a session i'm delivering on to me the essence of teaching is you start with with something a story but then you generalize so in every one of my valuations i'm constantly looking for hey I'm. I'm not just interested in valuing Facebook. But what can I learn from this exercise that I can use in general? Because that's what teaching is all about. It's taking something, talking about it, and say, okay, you know what? Given this, what can we learn about the next time we value a company with a lot of users? So to me, that's that's why I describe myself as a teacher. My blog post is just an extension of my teaching because much of what I put in my blog becomes, you know, either chapters in my books or sessions in my classes. So to me, the, the line between my teaching, my writing, and my research all kind of blur because everything is part of the same process for me.
1: What's the best question that a student has ever asked you?
0: Best question that was, have you ever lost faith? And basically his question was, in mean, investing is about faith, right? Because you think about it, to invest you gotta have faith in your estimate of value and faith that the price will adjust to value. And the reason I use the word faith is you can't prove it. There is no proof you can offer that if I buy undervalued stocks, even if I do everything right, that I'm actually going to make money. So it's faith. He said, Have you ever lost faith? And I said, Every day my faith is tested. And tell you how it gets tested. Let's say I, have now I bought right after I bought Facebook. This did not happen. Let's suppose a day I, because I bought Facebook two hours before the Zuckerberg testimony came on. Right? Just right around that. Let's suppose during the testimony he said something that caused the price to drop to one forty. Nothing fundamental, but something he said triggered something. Stock price drops one forty. That's a, almost the market knocking on your door saying, "Do you still have faith?" But every time you buy a stock and the stock price goes down, the market is testing you. And let's face it, most of us lose faith at some point in time. I've come very close to losing faith on at least on individual stocks. Or I say, you know what? Nothing fundamental has happened, but market's telling me something. I don't know what it is, and I don't have enough faith to hold on. So so I said uh, well, I get tested every day. And he said, does that trouble you? And I said, not in the least. And I tell them about this um, the long, long time ago. When I was, when I was a young kid, I, I was lucky enough to sit in on a talk that Mother Teresa gave you know, in India. And um, this was, she was in her 70s. And she said, every day I wake up and I question the existence of God. I mean, this is a woman who spent her entire life as a nun, Serving God and became as you know was uh, put up a sainthood afterwards. And she said, every day she got up and questioned the existence of God because she said, I look around me and I see evidence that God doesn't exist, and I question the existence of God. And I said, if Mother Teresa can question the existence of God, as an investor, I can question my belief in value. And I and I really believe that it's only by constantly questioning your faith can you make it stronger. And that's why I said when that's what I said makes me uncomfortable about true believers, because true believers, it's not faith. It's a fact to them. It's a fact that they have an undervalued stock. It's a fact that the price will adjust to value. I don't live in a world of facts. I live in a world of faith, which means that if the if I buy something and the price goes down, I have to remember that this wasn't a fact. This was faith. And I have to, I have to go back and say, was my faith well-based and that to me is at the core of investing because everything else is detail i mean i can teach you the mechanics of valuation it's not complicated it's just if you can add subtract multiply divide you can do valuation but learning to value companies is easy learning to have faith in that value is really difficult and it's not something you learn by reading what other people have written you learn by living through the experience of investing having your faith tested and then going back and reaffirming your faith.
2: When you say lose faith, I guess you mean on an individual story, you do a lot of work and you come up with what you feel is a fair value. But I assume there are times where you get that value wrong for some reason or another. So I guess what is you're saying.
0: Si- yeah, if I got the value wrong because something in the story has changed, I could change the value. The faith gets tested when your story stays intact. But the price okay. keeps moving in the opposite direction, okay? Because then, what's the market saying? I don't care about stories. It's the problem that people have faced with Amazon and Tesla for the last seven years, right? But they do the fundamentals that say, you know what, the stock should be trading at 120. I'm going to sell short, and the stock goes up 25 percent. And right. there's not, I mean, fundamentally everything is going wrong, but the stock keeps going up. And you say, what the hell is going on here? And that's, that's really when fake gets tested. Because if something fundamental changes about the story, then I know that I got that part of the story wrong. That's easy for me to deal with. I go and I change my story, I change my valuation, and then see if my decision has changed. I did that with, with Valiant, for instance. I screwed up the first time I bought Valiant because I think that the, I thought that the damage had already been, had been passed through. What I missed was the permanent damage they did to their name as a company by the way they behaved. I mean something that I think they're trying to fix by changing their name to what Bausch and whatever the new name is. But right. that's what I missed, and that was an eye opener for me because it showed me how critical in some businesses your the damage you can create to your to your reputation is. So it's something I learned that I that I filed away that I will bring out. When I look at companies that have done something, I pulled that out of the closet when I was looking at Facebook and say, is Facebook like Rallion? Has it done so much damage to its name that people will not use it? And I concluded no, but it's a tool that I did not have until I learned by hard experience that I'd missed it in the valued
1: valuation. I'm just fascinated by how far or how deep the connection seems to be between you and your lifestyle and your philosophy and your investment process and just how integrated those seem to be when you talk about faith and faith in your process, it seems almost like you can, you've achieved a sort of level of calm by continually testing your beliefs that enables you to go through this process and avoid overreacting when something doesn't go your way.
0: I have I have a very simple test for my for my portfolio it's called the sleep test which basically means if I'm lying awake at night wondering what my portfolio is doing I fail that test so it's something I told myself a long time ago I want my life to be run by what I do in my life not by what's in my portfolio or how it did yesterday and it it's guided me so in a sense almost everything I do is this is a part of my life I mean in in a sense investing should not be at the center of my life, but portfolio return shouldn't be driving my lifestyle. So I want to, in a sense, make choices that allow me to be free of worrying about that. And again, I got incredibly lucky along the way. So um, I, you know, I'm not suggesting that somehow I'm special and I got here. I, you know, through a series of probably chance events, I ended up being able to do what I did but I encourage people to watch for those chance events. There will be openings in your life where you will learn things about you. And most of the time we're too busy kind of moving on that we don't stop and say, maybe I should incorporate that. And, and if there's nothing, as I've gotten older, I've learned to kind of understand what makes me uncomfortable and say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't do that again. Maybe that's not something I should be doing. So it's one reason for instance I don't use options in my portfolio. I I know how to use options. There are probably ways I can augment my returns by a couple of percent by using options. They make me uncomfortable. They make me uncomfortable for you know, and you could say it's there that's irrational. You value it, it's already in there. I know. But life is about dealing with your emotional um, you know, whether you're emotionally okay, as well as whether you're, because often when, you, when we make troubles in investing, it's because we've done something that intellectually we can rationalize, but emotionally we're uncomfortable with. And guess what? As human beings, that emotional discomfort is going to lead you to do stupid things afterwards. So, And, and, and that's one reason when somebody asks me, what's the right investment philosophy for me? Now, what book should I read to do that? My response is the best investment philosophy for you requires that you know yourself. Look within rather than without. Stop reading books about Warren Buffett and what makes him special and start thinking about what makes you tick, because that is the key to finding an investment philosophy that works for you is knowing yourself. Uh,
1: That's very deep. Also, I think that Daniel and I have both met a large number of investors who are not very attentive to the idea of being able to sleep well at night, whether it's emotionally or with respect to their portfolios. So that's a great insight. Uh, thank you for that. Daniel, do you have any other questions for the professor? I think uh, I've gotten a lot out of this conversation, so, but leave it to you.
2: I'll ask just one, one question as a closing okay. is just you have, you mentioned you have 53 stocks in your portfolio. You value them once a year, so we're basically a stock a week. What is, the, is that part of your comfort based on the emotional piece, or, or why, why does the – that's a very I, I big put, portfolio from my perspective, so what's your thinking I about call that?
0: that a, I call that a maintenance uh, – it's a maintenance valuation, which means that many, so for instance, revalue Facebook will take me about five minutes. So it sounds like a lot of work. But the revaluation year is often taking the next earnings report and updating the numbers and also checking the news to see if there's been any significant story that will lead me to reassess my story, significant news that leads. me. So it sounds like more work than it is when I say 53. Why do I need 53 stocks? I have a post on diversification. I'll send you the link. Where some, Because this is a question I get asked all the time. How many stocks should I have in my portfolio? Should I have three? Should I have five? I tell them, no. I'll tell you the limiting case. You can get away with one stock if you can do the if you can tell me the following. One, you feel absolutely certain about your valuation of the company. And two, you feel absolutely certain that the price will adjust to the value. So if you have if you're in a position of absolute certainty about value and price adjusting to value, you can get away with one stock. The further away you get from certainty on one or both of those dimensions, the more stocks you need in my portfolio. Uh, as somebody who believes in valuation, I also can tell you that I'm never certain about a valuation. In fact, that's why I put up those histograms, saying, look, this is how uncertain I feel. And because I tend to wander into stocks like you know, like Twitter when it was at you know, 16 or 18, these are stocks where I, fee- I, I feel it's undervalued based on the numbers. But I'm also, I, I'm also quite clear that, that, that I have a huge amount of uncertainty on that value. And I have a huge amount of uncertainty about the price adjusting value. And the more uncertain I feel, the larger my portfolio has to get. So my portfolio is global. It cuts across life cycle. It cuts across sectors. Much of it has been accumulated over time. And often it's by accident. I mean, I'll give you an example. Next week, I'm going to be in um, Manila and Bangkok. In Manila, I'm going to be valuing... You know, uh, a Filipino company in Bangkok, I'm going to be valuing a Thai company. And basically, every time I go into a country, I value a company in that country. And often I will find that company to be undervalued. And because I don't know much about these companies, I use my time there to ask questions about what am I missing? And if I'm not missing something, and the stock is truly undervalued. I have no qualms about adding a company like Vinamilk, which is uh, the Vietnamese milk company to my portfolio because I feel it's a cheap company. So I have opportunities to kind of globally diversify without trying too hard. And once I have something like that in my portfolio, as long as it stays within my parameters, I'm going to leave it there. So I didn't deliberately set out, say, I need 53 I had about, I'll tell you, about four stocks a year is about my standard practice. And so basically that's what happens is things accumulate over time. If I'm not finding a reason to get rid of stocks that have been there
2: for a while. Okay. That's 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 very clear approach. I, I like that. And I like I like how much you get to travel as part of your investing. That That's a nice extra that's dividend in the story. That's part of my key Investing is to me
0: the side product, teaching is the main product. So I, I travel to teach and in the side, as a side product, I get to invest in these neat companies I would never have known about until i you know, if I hadn't
1: been traveling and teaching. That's, yeah. All right, become a beach bomb and yeah, then exactly. the investing comes after that. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks very much, Professor. Uh, yeah, thank great you for great conversation. Uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. It was a
2: pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any investors in mind you'd love to hear join behind the idea, please let us know. You can tweet us at Daniels Seeking A or at M Brooks Taylor. Please leave a review on iTunes if you have the chance, as that will help us improve this podcast. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening and see you next week on Behind the Idea.